Not a Liar, Why People Don't Tell the Truth and How You Can Catch Them. Written and read by Gregory Hartley and Marianne Carinch. Introduction. Why You Need This Book. In daily life, I use the tools covered in this audiobook when I don't trust someone or when I need to get the upper hand for a purpose. Using them constantly to manipulate loved ones or business associates would make me a sociopath. Using them wisely means that I understand I have entitlements, the right to humane treatment, honesty, and fair play. Your goal is to insist on honesty or detect stress so that you can use it to get the result you want, not to manipulate those around you for sport. Very few people know how to use the techniques described in this book consciously. Most of these skills exist in your repertoire, but you can't necessarily draw on them at will or use them in conjunction with related talents. Even most of the so-called interrogators who handle terrorist suspects at Guantanamo Bay are really questioners who do not have the training to influence human motivation, read body language, and orchestrate interrogation techniques. Asking good questions is one of the skills you're about to explore, but it's only one of many. So when you learn how to combine tactics of interrogation effectively, baseline, read body language, minimize, and so on, you will be unique. Unique because you bring a different set of experiences and traits to the game from me or anyone else who listens to this material. When you understand the mechanics of stress and master the 12 basic approaches to manipulate someone's fears and dreams, you will be powerful. You may not be adept with those skills as soon as you finish listening to this, but give yourself time. This skill set grows over the years, as does the human mind. Section 1. Context. Chapter 1. Where do these techniques come from? Or, what does Abu Ghraib have to do with you? I started to develop interrogation skills in 1989, and I'm still learning. That started with army instruction that began with a desire to learn Arabic. When the country is in an at-war mode, interrogators need an operational knowledge to be effective. They need to know in a real way, not just a theoretical one, how enemy and friendly soldiers go about doing their job in order to ask questions that dig out essential facts. I needed to be put in harm's way in order to learn how to interrogate enemy soldiers who are forward deployed. Fortunately, I was deployed with the 5th Special Forces Group to Operation Desert Storm. This taught me a valuable lesson that I'll pass along to you as you begin your training. If you don't know what you're talking about, you put limits on what kind of information you will be able to get. If you have ever been interviewed by a human resources screener who knew almost nothing about your skill set, then you understand this limitation. From the Gulf War, I went to the SEER school. SEER is survival, evasion, resistance, and escape. There I interrogated eight hours a day, three days a week, every other week for three and a half years, for a total of about 570 interrogations. These interrogations were to help our Special Forces soldiers learn how to resist interrogation. When the Gulf War started, I was assigned to the Special Warfare Center at Fort Bragg. There were only about 55 Arabic-speaking interrogators in the entire U.S. Army, and we had six of them. This is one reason why I got so much experience in contact with Iraqi soldiers. My initial assignment took me to a team supporting the Saudi Arabian Army. Shortly thereafter, I began working with a team supporting the Kuwaiti Brigade. I screened enemy prisoners during Operation Desert Storm and interrogated many of them after that. During this period is when I really learned how to read body language and first discovered how to teach the techniques of interrogation. I also began to see the analogous relationship between using them in war and applying them in my daily life. You are a prisoner. Here's where I really begin to answer the question, what does Abu Ghraib have to do with you? Fundamentally, the tools of interrogation that I've used with prisoners have value in your everyday life because you have a lot in common with a prisoner of war. First and foremost, you have a little black box inside you that makes you who you are, and there are many forces at work that could potentially destroy what's inside the box. Second, the stress of being captured and then being a captive has corollary in your daily life. You have no doubt heard at least one story of a hard-charging soldier who died at enemy hands because he refused to talk. For him, the most sacred part of himself, that little box inside that contained his core identity, was the duty to protect others' lives by protecting certain information. Another soldier just as devoted to duty might crack under pressure and violate that sacred part of himself. He might still be alive, but he's no longer alive as that same person. Everyone has a little box. You may not even know what it contains, but if you lose it, you face a kind of personal extinction. Essentially, you become a stranger to yourself when you ravage a core belief or value, or when someone else manipulates you towards that same end. On a regular basis, just as a captured soldier does, you face situations like that, 
as well as individuals who have the potential to cause that destruction. Shock of capture, or turning your toy box upside down. When a person is captured, his stress levels go through the roof. If a capture comes after a firefight, he knows many of his friends have just died, which adds emotions such as grief and anger to the fear that runs throughout his entire body. This is the most dangerous moment in that person's life. Adrenaline levels are high, conscious thought isn't. I, the enemy, have just killed people he cares about, so he's poor Zeus hatred for me, my comrades, my country, and my commander. Another scenario has him on patrol. We abduct him quickly, with no one getting killed. Capture never feels good, so his hostility will rise. Suddenly he becomes truly helpless because his captors are screaming orders. Put your hands behind your head, for instance. He is like a dog who only hears blah, 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 blah. The tone of the voice is clear, but the directions aren't. If he does the wrong thing, will he die? That's possible, and he knows it. Anxiety, a byproduct of fear of the unknown, shuts down the thinking brain and turns on the body-protecting or reacting brain. Interrogators are brokers of anxiety. It's the product that we sell. Imagine the stress when your captors speak a foreign language. What are the captive's psychological defenses? He brings his wealth of experiences, or dearth of them, and his identities to the situation. He is a soldier, a husband, a son, and a guitarist in a garage band. Nowhere in that spectrum of defining roles is he a captive, so he has to learn to be a captive rather than draw from memory. Human brains function well when they have areas to store information, and they falter when information invades and has no place to go. Every time we experience something new, we build a mailbox in our head for related future knowledge and experience. This makes it much harder to suffer displaced expectation in the future. Think of the collapse of the World Trade Center's Twin Towers. You might have been able to envision a plane crashing into a building, but could you absorb the magnitude of what happened on September 11, 2001? That sight shocked me as it did millions of people. Our minds did not include a box for that information. It overwhelmed us. The captive confronts the dual trauma of direct exposure to the enemy and a new overwhelming experience. A captured frontline infantry soldier, rather than an intelligence officer, goes into the situation with a profound disadvantage and is unprepared for a particular kind of enemy assault. He doesn't speak the language of the enemy. He's just been shooting the captor's friends and plummets from being a powerful guy with a gun to someone subdued and at the mercy of another man with a gun. The moment he experiences such displaced expectations, not having a box in his head to place and process what's happened to him, he's extremely vulnerable. The essence of this man comes from a complex interplay of connections in his daily life. Self embodies input from others and from situations. Frame of reference, or a picture of the outside world, is prejudiced by experiences. This man has just suffered a severe blow to both self and frame of reference. No longer the rifle-carrying soldier, is now the helpless captive who failed his mission. He is now a loser, and the captor will not play the role of counselor unless it fits the captor's needs. Effects of captivity. The shock of capture seems to be the worst thing that will ever happen to the prisoner at the moment it happens. But wait, there's more. After the initial terror and fear for his life, the prisoner starts to adapt. He gets a mailbox in his head to help him cope with the stress. Then he meets an interrogator who speaks his language. The cycle of dependence is becoming more entrenched. When the prisoner encounters someone who speaks his language, there's a natural affinity. He's desperately in need of companionship because humans are social creatures that need reinforcement. The self-portrait the prisoner had has now become blurred. The picture has voids for roles he filled in his unit as a soldier. The newfound role of prisoner takes him off balance. The prisoner gets into a cycle of dependence that resembles regression or drops back to the last time in his life that someone made all the decisions for him. The prisoner becomes wholly dependent on the guards and the interrogators to tell him what the correct answer is to every question. If the shock of capture turned his toy box upside down, this can be likened to moving the playground. All the details that have been validated about the prisoner's intelligence and the good looks in the past now need nurturing. There's no source for this data, so the prisoner begins an internal conversation, one that aimed at regaining his equilibrium. In this conversation, a prisoner's the standard, so any self-doubt becomes magnified. The prisoner personalizes everything that happens, and the welfare of others becomes less important to him. Any threat to health in the compound is only perceived in terms of how it can injure him. The stress that was the shock of capture takes on new meaning when interrogations begin. Being captured and removed from the battlefield removes a warrior from the random haphazard attacks on the battlefield and into a battlefield that is specialized, personalized, and designed for one-on-one -on -one combat. Whether the interrogator compounds or allays these feelings is dictated by the psychological makeup of the prisoner. Pandering to the captor to keep him happy 
results in Stockholm Syndrome. The prisoner starts to identify with the captor and even emulate behaviors and speech patterns. Stockholm Syndrome can occur in just a few days. What does this have to do with you? You aren't behind bars, you eat good food, you walk about freely and bathe daily, but you're in a kind of captivity. You wake up and wonder why you'll get yelled at today. You look out the window and dream of running away from school, from home, or from your job. You choke on each meal you have with somebody who has you locked up emotionally. It is captivity. You answer the phone and you're too polite to hang up on a fundraiser. Rather than have to say no, you make a promise you can't keep. Clearly, you do understand captivity to some degree if you live in the civilized society we're in. We're trapped by things that our parents teach us. We're trapped by society's rules. We're trapped by everything we know. In mechanical terms, you are dealing regularly with responses linked to self-preservation. When the conditions of captivity, as I've described them here, are the same as those of a prisoner of war, your response will be the same as those of a prisoner of war. Go a step further. Any conditions that create unease, restlessness, instability, and or unpredictability give you experiences in common with the prisoner of war. What if you came back from vacation and found that someone had rearranged your office, moved the coffee maker, and put in a new phone system? You experience a temporary loss of control that may overwhelm you. You lose your ability to function at your peak because you move out of cognitive thought and into what we call limbic thought or an emotional state. You are an animal. Are you a primate, a lower mammal, or a reptile? When you use your cerebral cortex for language calculations and other logical functions, you're a primate. Your limbic system, which enables you to experience and express emotion, belongs to your mammalian self. And the reptilian brain cares only about the basics, hunger, sex, and survival. As a person's stress level rises, even without the touching or screaming, hormone production increases. It is the onset of the cortisol cycle. In short, two small glands near the kidneys, called the adrenals or stress glands, kick in. They fuel us for fight, which can be verbal or physical, or to escape the danger. The human peripheral nervous system contains two components for regulating the conscious mind, sympathetic and parasympathetic. The sympathetic agitates the body and prepares the human for fight or flight. The parasympathetic is responsible for resting and relaxing the human body. See these as a sort of upper and downer set of controls for the human mind. The sympathetic system engages in response to a perceived threat within milliseconds of the initial shock that triggers a cortisol cycle. Everything the stress hormones are going to do to your body to prepare it for fight or flight happens in that sliver of time. The body, not the mind, decides which systems are needed for that perceived threat. These systems turn on at the cost of others not deemed necessary. In rapid fire, the body takes these actions. Roots blood away from the face and skin to the muscles. Diverts blood away from the digestive and reproductive systems. Loses the capability to contract the bladder and expel waste. Floods with glucose from the liver to prepare for physical activity. Sends blood to the reptilian and mammalian brains at the expense of the primate brain. Raises heart action in order to get this blood to all the right places. Increases respiration in response to the heart, pushing glucose through the systems, fueling the muscles with oxygen. Heightens metabolic requirements so the body starts to sweat. Dilates pupils to collect data about the threat. And this is your mind at war. There are inward and outward signs of this activity. Inwardly, the signs are jittery, hypersensitive feeling signaling you're poised for action. Due to the lack of blood to the digestive system, you may get butterflies or sick feeling. Your heart races with blood leaving the skin, so you get the feeling of a high core temperature and a cool skin, so you feel clammy. Your breathing is elevated but constricted, so your heart and lungs race. This increased metabolism as much as 100% results in you feeling flushed and hot. Your focus becomes narrow and your hearing directed to your target. You can hear your heartbeat. Your mind recedes into the primitive state and your emotions come to the fore. This explains why so many people cry when they're confronted and angry. Don't perceive this as weak or fragile. Outwardly, there are noticeable signs as well. Among them are, the body's decision to take blood from the skin results in a pallid complexion. Being part of the digestive system, the mucosa of the lips and mouth have dramatically reduced blood flow, resulting in pale, thin lips. Hands may shake in response to increased metabolism. Increased need for air results in flared nostrils and audible breathing. The brow clinches and draws downward. Shoulders draw higher in preparation for defense or escape. Elbows go close to the ribs. The increased need for cooling causes the body to sweat, and in this sweat are massive amounts of byproducts 
the fight-or-flight body odor is noticeable. Ultimately, the person collapses. These are all the effects of the sympathetic nervous system forcing us into man's most primitive reaction, fight or flight. At this point, most of us function more similar to the leopard or other mammal than a human. We operate in limbic mode, and only limbic memories are truly available for processing. Practicing a sport or fight sequence under stress can make up for the fact that cognitive abilities are gone when high performance is needed the most. Simulating the stress conditions of competition, in addition to practicing specific moves, prepares athletes to succeed even when their ability to think is diminished. As the cycle continues, your brain regresses from primate to mammalian to reptilian. It dehumanizes starting at a minimal level and moving all the way to reducing you to nothing but the basest of cravings. So here's one more way of answering the question. What does Abu Ghraib have to do with you? Prisoners under stress lose their ability to function logically, and so do you. They also leak emotions, just as you do. Here's an exercise. Dress oddly, and then go to a shopping mall or a well-trafficked city street and walk around. I don't mean wear a costume. I mean wear clothes that reflect bad taste. So bad that you don't feel comfortable appearing in public in them. When people look at you out of pity, curiosity, or amusement, take note of how you feel. Notice how your stress level shifts in response to others' reactions to you. You are an interrogator. I began by asserting that you have interrogation skills in your repertoire, but that you probably don't use them consciously or in concert with one another. I'll give you a couple of examples of why this is a fact, so you can move ahead with the confidence that you're building on abilities and not learning entirely new ones. You routinely screen people to get various types of information from them. That is, you match your question to both your source and specific need for information. What you probably don't do is evaluate information in terms of its strategic, tactical, or quick fix role. In other words, is it important to your big picture? Is it a step toward achieving some goal? Or does the information just fill in an immediate need, such as tell you where the bathroom is? When I was forward deployed, I would interrogate recently captured soldiers. I'd go after low-ranking guys, and I'd have minutes to find out key bits of information that were important at the moment, such as what was dangerous in the area. A low-ranking soldier, generally the easiest to milk, represented a source of tactical level C information to me. In business, this is analogous to the person that is the receptionist. When you enter a prospect's office, you connect with the person at the front desk and pick up tidbits about the company. of recorded books presents get people to do what you want how to use body language and words for maximum effect by Gregory Hartley and Marianne Corinch narrated by Walter Dixon introduction any book that teaches how to get people to do what you want is a book about manipulation to manipulate people you need to understand first what drives them Let's start by jarring your perception of manipulation. It is not necessarily a horrible thing, predicated on a desire to exploit someone. In this book, we look at the art and science of persuasion. When used appropriately, that ability can support team building in the workplace, conflict resolution in tense situations, and harmony at home. And this is just an abbreviated list of the benefits. Looking across the spectrum of humanity, we know that Humans are complex creatures. Even in the psychologically healthy bands of the spectrum, human beings run the gamut from altruists to curmudgeons. Within this very complex and diverse population, however, there are also recurrent themes. These form the foundation for this book. In some ways, it is a Machiavellian look at how to make people do what you want. So by its nature, some of it sounds like the dark arts, as Hogwarts students might characterize it. Similar to our primate cousins, humans have a burning desire for companionship. First and foremost, we are herd animals with an instinct to belong. Once we gain that acceptance, however, we push more and more to set ourselves apart. Being a member of the crowd is generally not good enough. We want to hold distinction within the group, to be a member with clout at the least, or perhaps even the alpha in the pack. 
after striving to raise our level of importance within this group, when we achieve that and become a big fish in a small pond, most of us look for more. We aim to expand our circle, to move into a new pond, one with a new group to which we can belong, only to start the process all over again. If you doubt this premise, think about why you picked up the book. Are you moving into a new group and trying to better adapt and gain acceptance? Or are you looking to differentiate yourself from the crowd? Whether it is at work or in a social group, these two forces drive your choices at this moment, and other people around you are making daily decisions the same way. This book is about understanding those forces and making conscious decisions that will get the outcomes you want. One added benefit of learning these tools is the ability to see how and when people such as politicians and advertisers manipulate you. Even if you never exercise the skills of influence we cover in this book, you will benefit greatly from other people's deliberate attempts to use them. All the human drives we discuss in the book are applicable, whether you are in face-to-face -face contact with a person or in virtual contact. They also factor into encounters with perceived beings, that is, video games involving characters, but especially with robots powered by artificial intelligence, such as IBM's Watson technology. Let's start with the premise that humans tend to interact with and respond to robots in ways that mimic our relationships with domesticated animals. In May 2007, the Washington Post reported that an army colonel aborted tests that involved an autonomous robot whose job it was to blow up landmines. Built to resemble a stick insect, it blew up one mine after another in a live fire test. Each time it stepped on a mine, it lost a limb in the explosion. Relying on its remaining legs, it picked itself up and moved forward. With only one leg remaining, it still rose up and charged on. That's when the colonel stopped the exercise, because... The colonel just could not stand the pathos of watching the burned, scarred, and crippled machine drag itself forward on its last leg. This test he charged was inhumane. The colonel's response suggested he assigned an inherent human need to the robot to be safe, to preserve life. In a sense, he was manipulated into behaving in a way that seemed to run counter to his military training. On the surface, the story seems heartwarming because it exhibits the compassionate nature of a tough human being trained for war. However, the story has a dark side. It illustrates the danger of assigning human feelings and needs to perceived beings. A robot powered by Watson, or resembling a puppy, is still a robot, no matter how articulate the former may be and how cute and cuddly the latter might be. We develop feelings for the robots because they have human-like traits, or at least traits of living beings we value. Some people were fooled into thinking that human beings sent legitimate information and human opinions about the presidential candidates during the 2016 elections in the United States. In reality, the election interference can be linked to robots that reflected an agenda of real people, but the communication with Americans was not conducted by real people. The message to you is, there are attempts to manipulate you every day through various types of media, as well as face-to-face -face contact. The more you know about how to manipulate others, the sharper your senses will be in detecting when someone or something is trying to move you in a particular direction. Section 1. The Dynamics of Human Interaction Chapter 1. Shared Needs, Belonging, and Differentiating Take a minute and ponder what elements of your life you cannot live without. Look at the things that make your life valuable, not your latest gadget or miracle cosmetic, but the essentials that would leave a marked void if they disappeared. Some go without saying, such as your most basic human needs, food, clothing, and shelter. In terms of human drives, what is your most basic need, the intangible equivalent of food, clothing, and shelter? Regardless of whether your personality bends toward introverted or extroverted, regardless of whether your feelings about people make you a misanthrope or a philanthropist, human companionship is a primary driver of human behavior. 
companionship can mean different things to different people, but the premise remains consistent for all but the most deviant minds. People need people. Marianne and her co-author Trevor Crow, Molyneux, began their book Forging Health Connections with this fact. We are built for relationships. The need for connection with others permeates the human body. The rest of the book was devoted to scientific documentation of and guidance on ways people can heal and extend their lives through connection to other people. It is true, whether from the perspective of Maslow's hierarchy of needs or that of a medical doctor, people need people. In 1943, psychologist Abraham Maslow introduced his theory on the hierarchy of needs in a paper called A Theory of Human Motivation. The premise is that Unless the lower human needs related to survival and security are met, then an individual will not be psychologically equipped to pursue so-called growth needs. The ground floor of the pyramid is composed of the biological components we all know, food, sleep, and other elements essential to life. One floor up, you find all the things that provide safety. Arguably, each of these first two levels can be met without the need for other people. But the ability to go it alone ends there. On the third level, you have the spectrum of intangibles that relate to belonging and love, affection, relationships, and camaraderie. Moving up to the fourth level, you find esteem needs, such as achievement and reputation. And at the top, self-actualization. Maslow's theory was that human beings cannot progress to the next tier of the hierarchy until the needs below it are met. 21st century behavioral science has criticized Maslow, assigning greater weight than before to the need for human connection as a basic need. But ask yourself, if you were starving to death, not just hungry, but starving to death, would you want a hug or a cookie? What we consider achievement and reputation can come only when someone feels as though he belongs, that he genuinely connects to other human beings. The personal growth and fulfillment associated with self-actualization can only come after satisfying the need for achievement and reputation. Let's pause for a minute, because grasping the hierarchy of human needs is the core of the how-to information in this book. The motivation behind a person's choices takes shape according to what lower needs have been met and what higher needs remain unfulfilled. Among the most interesting attributes of human behavior is that these needs are often more visible from the outside than the inside. Others can clearly see things about you that you cannot, but there are exceptions. Look at the top tier of self-actualization. How can you see, understand, or manipulate another person's sense of self-actualization? After years of dealing with other people's behavior, we still don't know how anyone can start to understand what self-actualization means for another, especially when so few can define it for themselves. We will explore this conundrum later in the book when we look at internal and external motivators in self-actualization, essentially the power of a person's core principles and values versus the power of things like money and power. Greg's background as a battlefield interrogator and instructor in SCRE or SEER, Survival, Evasion, Resistance and Escape School, taught him that interrogators are rarely able to base an interrogation on grasping a source's criteria for self-actualization. Interrogators are on a schedule. The science of interrogation is about asking questions and getting as much information in as little time as possible. The process involves using shortcuts to get down to business. To begin, take the interrogator's approach to confronting a person's progress on the route to self-actualization. 1. Assume the person is not self-actualized. Most people are not. 2. Even if she is, shifting her to one of the lower tiers in the hierarchy will change that quickly. When an interrogator mounts a successful attack on someone's reputation, the ensuing campaign to restore that reputation drops the victim to the level below actualization. If you want an everyday example, tune into the smear campaigns of a presidential election. Watch the effect of defending a reputation that took decades to build. Do you see a different aspect of the otherwise poised candidate? 3. If you want to move him even lower on the pyramid, attack his sense of belonging. 
His response, as he tries to hold on to this most basic, intangible human need, is to drop a step down on the hierarchy. If he is masterful, or well-insulated, his regrounding can be quick, but it allows the manipulator an instant to get the upper hand. The drivers. Belonging and differentiating. The concept of belonging is simple. Everyone needs to feel as though he or she has a place in a group. And this does not mean something superficial like a plot of land in the suburbs with two kids and an SUV. Fundamentally, it means you experience some kind of bond with others. This can range from an impromptu group formed to solve a problem to complex fraternal organizations and societies. As you hear this, you may be thinking, I have bonds, but I'm clearly not the same as my friends, acquaintances, co-workers and family members. I'm different. Everyone knows that. A lot of them even look up to me for it. You got to that point by belonging. If you were not accepted first, you would be a stranger whose differences would have no meaning and carry no interest for the group. You would not be a subject of discussion in the same way a member of the group would be. Those differences, the identifying traits that you value, are called differentiating factors, and they are at the heart of both self-esteem and esteem from others. It is about accomplishments, reputation, status, and responsibility. Regardless of the group, and regardless of what creates the identity of the group, belonging, followed by differentiating, drives the sense of esteem a person gets. The kind of differentiating can be as individual as a fingerprint, and it is heavily dependent on the person's self-image, which is highly subjective and volatile. Self-image Frame of reference determines our outlook on the world. The more facts we know and the more expansive our experiences, the broader our frame of reference, and the more completely we see the picture. That frame of reference puts you in the picture somewhere, too. What do you look like in that picture? You may not have considered how your self-image is tied to others. What other people tell you about you affects how you see yourself in the frame. In some cases, they expressed an opinion openly, but in other cases, they merely implied it, or you thought they did. Your psyche will sometimes manufacture other people's judgments or opinions of you. Start with the physical. Are you taller or shorter than average? Or what population? We know a woman who is five foot three and tells of a time when she was tall. The story is funny because, as a child, she was always tall for her age. Later in life, when she told friends she was glad she had been gifted with height, people burst her bubble. She carried the delusion of being tall well into adulthood. How does such a skewed perspective develop? Her self-image developed as she looked at the tops of her childhood friends' heads, and then it hardened because those friends never challenged her as they grew and she did not. Her height was never a subject of discussion. This same kind of deference occurs on a regular basis when someone differentiates himself in a confined environment and creates a superlative image in a limited population. You see this phenomenon all the time in small-town high schools, where the most gifted football player is small in stature but runs fast. As soon as he gets to a college populated by bigger players who outsprint him, his self-image takes a beating. Maybe you are more attractive or athletic than others in your group. Ask yourself what the standard is for your group, and what would happen if your tribe suddenly changed. What if you changed jobs and ended up in the Yucatan Peninsula with Mayan descendants who top out at about five feet tall? Or if you took your slightly plump, tanned body, considered beautiful where you live now, for an extended stay in Norway? These examples are a bit extreme, but they highlight that your sense of belonging to a group and being distinguished within that group is a relative judgment. It applies in terms of achievement, too. Many people become big fish in little ponds and become convinced that they are capable of so much more. They move on to a larger pond, only to find that their deferential group has been left behind. Suddenly, they are no longer better or normal, much less superlative. This new set of expectations, whether vocational or social, changes the ground rules. Self-image and interrogation, the extremes. The science of interrogation is about asking questions and getting as much information in as little time as possible, assuming the person cooperates. 
the art of interrogation happens when you apply a set of extreme interpersonal skills so subtly that the unskilled observer rarely knows what is going on. Both the interrogator and the source are keenly aware of the interchange. It is more stressful for both than either will likely encounter in any other situation. This art of interrogation relies heavily on managing the person's self-image. In the interrogation business, the euphemism for a cooperative source is a broken source. This implies that the interrogation broke her will to resist, and she will cooperate. A source who broke on direct means she answered the questions she was asked. No fanfare or manipulation. The mechanics of what makes a person divulge sensitive information to her enemy in that manner cannot be overlooked. Consider this classic scenario of a captured soldier sent to a compound to face an interrogation. When a soldier enters military service, he is indoctrinated and pumped full of duty, honor, country, and camaraderie. The system of teamwork, mission, and higher purpose insulates him from the thought of what the enemy must be like. It is simple. The guy on the other side is the enemy. He is to be destroyed, and an interrogator has the power to do it. The soldier's self-image is manufactured and injected into him. Regardless of where he fits in the group, he is a soldier. He belongs. So now all he needs to do is differentiate. The younger a soldier, the easier it is to have him absorb this self-image. Camaraderie, cohesive training, good leadership, and proper discipline insulate him and prevent him from needing self-examination. He does not need to evaluate whether he is a fool or a wise man. It doesn't matter whether or not he understands his government's policy and it fits his ideology, or that he is serving more than one master. The profile is built and reinforced by what it takes to stay alive, stay mission-focused, and to look out for his team. The rituals of his military life play a central role in his decisions and responses. Humans are very complex creatures with many subroutines running in the background. One sure way to short-circuit this is through rituals, rites of passage, and complex imagery. It plays out in social clubs and formal organizations like the Masons and American Legion, as well as in formal training, like the military. On a more insidious scale, it plays out during informal political rallies, like the Red, Republican, and Blue, Democratic teams in the United States, as they prepare for ritual war with the other party. Watch the news feeds. U.S. political rallies often have the imagery of war. The rituals of the party bond people to others with whom they have little else in common other than a candidate or a single issue, such as immigration. You can even see how the pageantry and image-filled ritual of the Third Reich was so fully overwhelming and galvanizing a people who felt oppressed by an unfair treaty. When a soldier is captured, everything turns upside down. He no longer has the input to maintain the image of warrior, professional, and noble servant to his country. As he sees the enemy for the first time in human terms, he is barraged on every front with reality-altering images. The self-image inputs that created his role of soldier recede into oblivion. No longer a combatant, he now depends on the captor for everything, from food and shelter to communication with family. The other soldiers from his world are now just as dependent, and the uniforms that held so much power before are gone, or worse, they are simply a mocking reminder of the earlier self-image. His only contact with someone who speaks his language is the interrogator. So, prisoners often react to questions to sustain conversation and regain some form of stability. A good interrogator starts the conversation in such a way that the first question lets him know whether the system has done the hard work of breaking the prisoner. In wars prior to the 21st century, most people, as high as 90%, had broken on direct, or simply answered the interrogator's questions without manipulation. People curious about the leverage that interrogators possess discover that they are anxiety brokers, relying on the fear of the unknown and managing that fear to get a desired result. The one unknown that people fear the most is personal extinction, and that does not refer to physical death. The personal extinction to which we refer is psychological, an aspect of identity similar to self-actualization because it is so personal 
and only the individual knows what defines it. An interrogator's magic is to find the combination of words that engender that fear, and then relieve the fear just as efficiently. According to the research done by Marianne and her co-author Trevor Molyneux, a battlefield interrogator who wanted to build rapport with a prisoner, for example, may have begun the process by making sure he had something to eat and a sense that he would not be physically abused. The food Marianne and Trevor mention isn't food to eliminate dire hunger. The POW isn't looking for food as much as he is looking for certainty. This certainty comes in the form of a morsel or handout. Contrast the scenario of the traditional soldier as a prisoner of war with a more recent situation involving terrorists. The new enemies of the United States and most of the Western world do not seem to break as readily as the soldier in the traditional mold. Although the enemy has changed, the tools to break him have not. The currently approved techniques were derived from a brilliant non-coercive interrogator from Nazi Germany named Hans Scharf. His techniques, which we discuss later, are brilliant, but they do not seem to have the desired effect on non-traditional combatants. The unsatisfying results are predictable. The terrorist has no image built on a group of comrades. Often, he acts independently and insulates himself. His self-esteem comes from the fact that he operates clandestinely, and his self-image is deeply rooted in the justification for his actions. When captured, he faces the enemy as a warrior in the cause of a greater power. He sees, often for the first time in his life, the infidel and the experience of capture. That assault on his psyche reinforces the self-image honed by his beliefs, as well as the image of the Western heathen. The true believer gets further justification. He communicates with his centering authority, or in Western terms, he meditates, and the jihadist has his self-image bolstered. There is a cliché that says armies fight their last war continuously. By holding a group of people who face interrogation with these same tools indefinitely, and allowing them to recenter, Western powers created the unimaginable, the ascetic jihadist. We are not discounting the need for distancing terrorists from their targets. Rather, the Western world needs a different approach for a new enemy. The effect of the current system is to strengthen the self-image of the jihadists and take away any chance the interrogator has to broker anxiety by demonstrating his understanding of the terrorists' feelings of personal extinction. ISIS fighters might be viewed as somewhere between terrorists operating in cells and independently and the cohesive units of soldiers. In the case of ISIS prisoners, non-coercive techniques apparently worked in some cases. According to Seth J. Fransman, executive director of the Middle East Center for Reporting and Analysis, interrogators have sometimes been surprised at how forthcoming their prisoners are. Fransman, who has been covering ISIS, often as an embedded journalist since 2015, notes simply, Many of the ISIS fighters and member didn't appear to think they had committed crimes by supporting ISIS. They assigned legitimacy to their battlefield activities the same way a U.S. soldier might. One key factor, in Fransman's experience, they felt especially safe with interrogators associated with the Kurdistan regional government. Their use of non-coercive techniques was in sharp contrast to the style of the Iraqis, whose Shiite militias were known to torture prisoners and make them disappear. They simply didn't fear execution at the hands of the KRG. You will likely never deal with either of these extremes, but consider what commonalities exist between the interrogator's circumstance and yours. When someone opposes you and is bolstered by forces, inside or out, you have little chance to get her to do what you want. But when that person feels threatened, whether the threat occurs because she feels like an outsider, like a nobody in the group, or in danger of being supplanted as the Alpha, you have a lever. How you apply this lever is the art, because you will creatively rely on both positive and negative levers, depending on the situation and the individual. We want to emphasize that it is extremely dangerous to inject poison into someone's self-image. You can push a person to retaliate violently by doing that. If you manipulate someone to the point where she feels she has lost her sense of self, that is, the point of personal extinction, and you do not know how to manage the situation, you can seriously harm her psyche. When interrogators do this, they 
either pull the person out of it and restore her sense of self, or walk away, not caring what kind of damage they just inflicted. But daily life is not an interrogation, and the outcome is not a life-or-death situation. Used for the right purpose and in proper measure, you can get people to do things you want. Used incorrectly, these tools can result in things you really do not want. A parent might choose the incorrect way to punish a misbehaving child by taking away the one thing in his life that means the most to him, his puppy. In trying to manipulate the child to behave, the parent has unwittingly scared his psyche. Randy Vela's 2016 suicide spotlights a worst-case situation resulting from toying with someone's self-image. As an overweight 18-year-old girl, she endured body-shaming from people at her school as well as people using fake Facebook accounts to send bullying messages. Brandy changed her phone number and even reported the intense bullying to police, who couldn't trace the messages and were forced to wait until a physical confrontation occurred. When the harassment continued, she snapped. In front of her parents, Brandy shot herself, the literal expression that she had experienced personal extinction. When we wrote the original version of this book, Suicide was the third leading cause of death for people ages 15 to 24, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. As of this writing, it has risen to the second leading cause of death for this age group. Young psyches are not necessarily resilient enough to deal with the end of a love affair or an embarrassing situation. Do you think embarrassment isn't a strong enough reason to take your own life? After a DUI or minor scrape with the law, a violation that would not ruin a person's life. Some people choose suicide instead of the embarrassment of jail. If their pride in being respectable, dignified individuals was fundamental to their personal identities, the possibility of jail time drove them to personal extinction. Their definitions of respectable and dignified did not allow a check mark in the box for incarceration. A quick Google search yields dozens of examples many people were well into adulthood when they did it. Self-image and cloistered groups. Every group develops a norm, or concept of typical for its group. The norm can be mainstream for the overall culture, or so narrowly focused and bizarre that only initiates recognize it. The more open the group is to outsiders, the more mainstream the group will remain. As a group becomes more cloistered, Individuals within it gain more power and influence. Cult leaders illustrate this dramatically. Jim Jones of the People's Temple, Charles Manson of the Manson Family, Marshall Applewhite of Heaven's Gate, and David Koresh of the Branch Davidians. Often these big fish individuals will distort and convolute the group's norms so much that by the end, which in these cases was the end of life, no one of the others could recognize how it happened. The people who fell under their spell described them as charismatic or even divine. One quick look by the rest of us who did not belong to that tribe asked one question. What the hell were they thinking? Oddly enough, they were responding in the same way Maslow predicted. First, by belonging, and then by differentiating. They belonged because each of them took part in a group. Whether it offered refuge from parents who opposed the hippie way of life, a world that did not understand racial harmony, or simply feeling as though they had no peers in the real world, each person found a group with ideas and beliefs he or she shared, a place that offered comfort. They differentiated by following a leader who steadily increased his sway over his family and skewed the way the group's norms took shape. By attempting to fit in, each person moved further and further from the norms of the society, as he or she became similar to the others, and even sought to become a favorite child to this paternal figure. It's unlikely that any of these people signed up to commit mass suicide or multiple homicides, but many of them found themselves doing exactly that. One could argue that, by ending their lives and others' lives so dramatically, they were all mentally ill. But other events some controlled experiments, and others rooted in common practices, indicate otherwise. In 1971, psychologist Philip Zimbardo invited a population of healthy, middle-class male college students to participate in a two-week study of the effects of prison life on the psyche. 
Arbitrarily, he divided the group of 18 in half, nine guards and nine prisoners. Simbardo's team transformed the basement of a building on the Stanford University campus into a prison environment, with the added touch of planting video and audio recording devices so they could monitor what happened. Upon capture, the prisoners were treated as real prisoners, from hearing the Miranda rights to de-lousing. The guards received no special training, but they knew their job was to enforce order in the prison and do what they thought was necessary to gain the respect of the inmates. While prisoners wore baggy outfits that looked like dresses, the guards wore khaki uniforms and sunglasses, and they were armed with whistles and billy clubs. Guards worked in three-hour shifts, but the prisoners played their parts around the clock. Day one passed without incident. On day two, a rebellion broke out. All nine guards came on duty and decided to quell the rebellion with force, which began by spraying the prisoners with a fire extinguisher to subdue them. The prisoners suffered ice burn, which caused pain and chapping, and it was enough to give the guards the upper hand. They stripped the prisoners, removed their beds, and threw the ringleaders into solitary confinement. Day three brought some new tactics by the guards. They split the prisoners emotionally and psychologically by singling out three for good behavior and giving them privileges, such as food and beds, while denying others any comforts. To prove how much control they really had, they switched the good and bad prisoners. The prisoners became confused and thought some of them had turned. Distrust grew among them. While the prisoners became more fractured as a group, the guards bonded. One prisoner cracked so badly that he was released from the experiment. Three days later, after prisoners were forced to clean toilets with their bare hands, the experiment ended. Thinking that no one monitored the video after regular hours, night shift guards concocted such degrading and pornographic punishments that the researchers knew normalcy no longer mitigated their behavior. On his website devoted to the prison experiment, Zimbardo asks, How could intelligent, mentally healthy, ordinary men become perpetrators of evil so quickly? He concluded the following about the fundamental issues of bonding and fracturing. By the end of the study, the prisoners were disintegrated both as a group and as individuals. There was no longer any group unity. Instead, it was just a bunch of isolated individuals hanging on, much like prisoners of war or individuals hospitalized for mental illness. The guards had won total control of the prison, and they commanded the blind obedience of each prisoner. In psychological terms, the guards' behavior can be explained with the concept of de-individuation, a state when a person becomes so submerged in the norms of a group that he loses his sense of identity and personal accountability. During hazing rituals, fraternities produce an analogous result by leveraging students' desire to belong, reinforcing the demands of leaders through peer pressure, and shrouding the real nature of the hazing to come with secrecy. Many of the hazing abuse cases that have ended tragically involved pledges being forced to outdrink one another. Most of the time, that involves alcohol. However, at Chico State in 2005, hazing involved making pledges drink so much water that one of them, Matthew Carrington, died from water intoxication. You might think, why didn't they just say enough is enough? The responsible fraternity brothers did something insidious, most likely without even realizing how effective it would be. They physically isolated two of the pledges and broke them down mentally by stressing them out physically. What caused each of these experiments to go haywire? And what does this have to do with getting people to do what you want? First, let's look at the cause of the failure. Defining a group. On the outside, looking in. The bell curve gives us a simple model for analyzing a group. Within any group, you can choose to represent people on a bell curve. The narrative description goes something like this. 1. Some are barely members of the group, more tolerated than belonging. They exist on the fringes of the group. Let's call these subtypical. Although others may tolerate them, they are not emulated, and most others think, there but for the grace of God go I. They may be discussed, however, because even though they are ugly babies, they are our ugly babies. 2. 
Other members represent what is normal or typical for the group. They do not have extraordinary abilities and are not particularly charismatic. They are middle of the road, or in our bell curve image, middle of the line. 3. On the side opposite the ugly babies are people who are super typical within the group. They are the beautiful people, admired and emulated and even obeyed in some cases. Depending on the size of the group, this might be one person or many people. These are the leaders, whether that's a formal or informal designation. Cloistering to limit inputs to self-image. Think about this bell curve model as it applies to your life, on a small scale that describes your family all the way up to a full-blown cultural model. We emulate the people on the right. The mainstream model in the American culture results in celebrity endorsement of products. But why does this work? Humans are primates. That does not necessarily mean you came from monkeys, just that you are a different kind of monkey. It makes no difference where you stand in the evolution discussion. The fact that humans are primates is not open for debate. Regardless of your ethnicity, primary language, or culture, you share about 95% of your DNA with chimps. You also share a few other attributes. Whether we like it or not, many of our most basic drives mirror those of our hairy cousins. Chimps are social creatures living in small colonies with a distinct government. The arrangement seems very similar to a tribal human government. There is a ruling class, not typically elected, and the other members of the colony understand their place. Chimps develop a rhythm to life that is based on deference. An alpha chimp is alpha in anything he chooses. Other chimps do not challenge his choice about which leaves will be good to nest in. If he is alpha, he can direct the group to nest in whatever leaves appeal to him. That primate behavior is just as prevalent in humans. Once someone proves herself more intelligent than you in accounting, she is likely going to get deference in other areas as well. It's analogous to Taylor Swift's popularity on Twitter. She can sing and write great songs about old boyfriends, so she's earned the deference of 82 million followers on Twitter. Who cares what she thinks about shopping and politics? Think you're above that? Have you ever deferred to an actor for pain relief advice? Or to a musician for guidance on which candidate should sit in the White House? There is nothing fundamentally wrong with that model because we are not cloistered. We have access to information about the same issues from other sources. They are only preying on our drives from a distance, unless we choose not to access information from alternative sources. This is the dark side of our exposure to alphas through media. Depending on our response to media stars and their messages, we can become cloistered. One of the fastest growing branches of the American Psychology Association is Division 46, the Media Psychology Division, which is devoted to the impact of media on people. A 2006 article written by Zach Stambor for the American Psychological Association says that with some media experiences, we get hooked as a means to unwind and escape. With others, we crave connection. We become oddly connected to celebrities and to people with whom we share some affinity, even though we are not likely to ever meet them. To an increasing extent, these virtual connections are shaping our sense of place in the world. How we interpret information, our opinions of issues and candidates, who is behaving heroically and who is monstrous, media has an impact. And the more we let ourselves become media sponges, the more likely it is for us to retreat to cloisters of like-minded individuals. Media will help us find safe, comfortable places in a chaotic world. This is compounded belonging and a new virtual cloister. Morphing Behavior Standards When humans are cloistered, and there is no mainstream outside influence to serve as a reminder of what's normal, then normal begins to look more and more like what is in the mind of those people on the bell curve who exceed what's normal, the people we call supertypicals. Sometimes this group image is distorted by forced deference, such as violence or threats of violence, but more often it is distorted by human nature. When collective thought begins to move in the direction of what is normal for a supertypical person, he becomes even more of an authority. Wanting to be more like him, 
others in the group continually struggle to emulate the supertypical, whose behavior and tastes become the new standard. This action reflects the natural drive to differentiate the self from the group and assert one's own distinction. The supertypical rewards this behavior, unless the acolyte attempts to bypass the master, in which case the upstart may find himself smacked down a rung on the status ladder. This progression toward the group's standard is viewed as an accomplishment, and it leads directly to respect and a feeling of accomplishment. This dynamic played out in ugly ways during the Iraq War. The abuse at Abu Ghraib was one of the most notorious. Nobody was around to watch as Charles Grainer warped his team's sensibilities. Whatever he considered fair treatment of prisoners became normal for the group. A little-known fact is that all military police who guard prisoners are reservists. Why? We only need prison guards when we have a war. The byproduct is that a group of school teachers, bank tellers, short-order cooks, and electricians may show up to guard prisoners. What if one of them is a penitentiary guard in his day job, as Grainer was? Imagine the deference right out of the gate. Rank aside, he gains the role of informal leader. The supertypical people can prey on the two fundamental drives, to belong and to differentiate, to get what they want. Many people are uncertain of where they belong in a group, or if they belong, when in fact they are squarely typical. This can come from a bad or misshapen self-image or simple insecurity that creates a distorted view regardless of input from the outside. The supertypical helps them to feel needed or wanted, and thereby creates a sense of community. The stable, well-adjusted leader uses this to create a harmonious team. The unstable or demented leader creates an ever-morphing reality that progressively separates adherents from society. This negative use of positive tools was a primary mechanism for Charles Manson. <laughs>